I want to thank you again for being here uh, and want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, and uh, I'll give you a moment to find it. And then uh, when you get it, say amen, if you don't mind. I hear a few people. All right, so we got it. We good? All right, so uh, I'm going to read it, pray for us, and then I'll jump right into it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And as he preached, he said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you bless our time? Would we see Jesus and his glory, his beauty, his majesty? Would you speak through your servant? We know the grass withers and the flowers fail that we are like dust, we are here today and gone tomorrow, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. Father, would you do business with us? Would you change us, increase our faith and hope and confidence and love for the Lord Jesus Christ? We pray this in his name, amen. We're going to start this new series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, a few sort of opening remarks we believe that Mark's, Mark is the oldest gospel that, um, if you want to sort of put it in its context, that all the apostles were beginning to die at the hand of persecution, and the Lord moved by the Holy Spirit to record the life and story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes perfect sense, right, that, that prior to the writing of a gospel, that, that the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that it was really shared word of mouth. It was shared through preaching and teaching. And you know what happens just over time, our memories fade. Those sort of, sort of pillars of the faith that they die. And the Lord in his kindness, he says, hey, this story of Jesus, it needs to be written. It needs to be written down on ink and, and cherished that we might come face to face with our God again. I've wrestled with sort of what's going to be a theme, and I've thought not just about you, but about me. And to be honest, I don't always 
love Jesus as I should. And the good news of the gospel doesn't always seem that good. I get bored with it. I assume with it. I think I'm safe sort of because I know content. And it's really, really easy to not be in awe of Jesus. And so as I approach the book of Mark, from my own heart, I've just been praying like, Lord, let me see again. Let me see you in your glory. Let me be moved by your majesty. Let me repent where you're calling me to repent. Let me believe again where you're calling me to believe. In other words, man, I, 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 I'm hoping that through our time with being in the gospel, that man, that if you don't believe that today might be a day of salvation, that if you have grown bored with Jesus, that might the Lord over this stretch of time cause us to be in wonder of him again. So that's what I want uh, for us and for our time. A little bit about Mark. Uh, Mark was a brilliant man, and, and we believe that the gospel of Mark was actually Mark's recording of Peter's testimony of Jesus. And we have that from a church father who basically validates that the Mark's gospel was written as, the, as Mark spent some time with Paul, but then he spent a lot of time with Peter. And we believe that as he spent time with Peter in Rome and in ministry, that he took the pen out and wrote what we have. And so Mark was not necessarily uh, an apostle. He wrote from an apostle's perspective, namely Peter. It's one of the reasons in Mark's gospel, Peter is never cast in a negative light, right? We know like the real Peter that kind of comes out with everybody else, that Peter is not in Mark. And so for a lot of other different reasons, we believe that there is a lot of validity to this fact that Mark is writing the account of Jesus from Peter's perspective. But what else do we know about Mark other than he traveled with Peter? We also know that he's from northern Africa. And he moved to Jerusalem and spent some time with Paul and then Peter. But then he went back after Peter was killed. Um, Mark went back. And Mark went back to northern Africa. And he actually started, right, uh, the sea, the right, the sea of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. He was the bishop, the first bishop of northern Africa was this guy who wrote this gospel. So let me get this right. This guy is responsible for spending time with Paul and Peter. He is the guy who started sort of the sea or, or the, the territory of the church in northern Africa, is responsible for the propagation of the gospel in Africa. And you notice what you don't see in the beginning of Mark's gospel? His name is not even here. Now think about that. I have this book in any book you find. There's going to be a title and there's going to be some cover art and you're going to see the author on there somewhere. We got to give credit to the author. Think about every movie you watch. When the movie starts, that the credits roll. They're going to tell you who the leading actor is and who the director is. And then the movie starts. And then when the movie ends, the credits roll again. And the director is on there again. And all the actors. And then the stunt doubles. And then like the stranger dude who is just standing by doing nothing. His name has to be on there so that he can get credit for being in a movie. Think about how our world works. We want credit. 
And in Mark's gospel, you won't find his name. It's as if he is saying, don't look at me. Look past me and look through me. Don't remember Mark. Remember who Mark wrote about. That's who you need to remember. That's impressive, right? Mark is up to something. But it's not just the lack of his name in his gospel. That, that's impressive. What's also unique about Mark is the pace of Mark. It's really fast-paced. It's, it's, it's the shortest gospel, but Mark doesn't really waste words. That, that what's also different about Mark is how he starts his gospel. That John starts his gospel of Jesus with eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. What John wants you to get is that this person of Jesus was the same person with the Father before the foundations of the earth. Luke starts his gospel writing, giving thanks to the wealthy dude who paid for him to go and travel and investigate the claims of Jesus, a man named Theophilus. And then he goes and he starts to write about an angelic visit. Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, tracing Jesus' humanity back to Abraham and back to David. You know how Mark starts his gospel? With the wilderness. That's the first thing he wants us to read when we read his gospel. He starts his gospel in the wilderness. We ought to scratch our heads and be like, man, what is this dude up to? Like, why? That's what I hope for us to see today is that there is hope in the wilderness. And that's what Mark wants to communicate. Now, to get at this text, I want us to think about three things. The first thing is a theology of the wilderness, the promise in the wilderness, and hope in the wilderness. Those three things. Now, why do I say a theology of the wilderness? Why would I start here? I'm going to get there shortly, but I want to sort of work through how Mark opens his gospel. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And notice that second sentence, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And so right there, if you're new to the Bible and new to understanding it, Mark already tells you where he's going. He's basically saying you cannot understand his gospel unless you go back and read Isaiah. In other words, Mark's gospel is volume two and volume one is Isaiah. That, that, that you, you, we, are being, we are walking into the middle of the story and what Mark says, you cannot understand what I'm doing without going back to read Isaiah in the Old Testament. So notice what he does. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark picks up on a promise that, that, that the Lord makes to the Lord saying that, hey, when I send you to the earth, to ransom mankind, you're not going to be the first one to go. I'm going to send a forerunner in front of you. And that's how we will know that this is the Messiah. Not just when a dude shows up and says, I'm Jesus. No. What, what, what Isaiah says, no, there's going to be a forerunner to the coming of Jesus. And John tells us who he is. His name is John the Baptist. And this makes perfect sense. That in 2015, we took our family over to Selma, and it was the 50th year anniversary of the march across uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the march on Selma. And we went, 
And I was just not prepared for, one, the amount of people who were there, but two, like, how much work they did before anybody showed up. Think about it. Like, former President Barack Obama was there, and First Lady Michelle Obama was there. Former President George W. Bush was there, and, and former First Lady Laura Bush was there. Dignitaries were there. You name it, they were there at the bottom of the bridge. And you know what I noticed above anything? It was Secret Service everywhere. It was like, like stretch limousines, bulletproof. It was helicopters flying everywhere. It was dudes like on all the buildings. And I'm like, oh my word, like look at this. Why would they go through all of that? Because some famous people were showing up in Little Selma. You would not send those dignitaries in Selma without some people preparing their way. And that's what God says. Do you think I'm going to send my son to the earth and not send someone to, to roll out the carpet for him? This is, this is God of God. He is not just going to show up. I'm going to send someone out in front of him. And the person God the Father sends out before God the Son is John the Baptist. And that's what you see. John appeared, right? Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Well, who is the messenger? Verse 4, John the Baptist. He appears before Jesus. And this tracks, right? Remember, Mary was not the only one who conceived supernaturally. Mary was actually second. Elizabeth and Zechariah got visited by the angel. And Zechariah was in the temple, and the angel told him, you and your wife, even in your old age, will have a son. And Zechariah doesn't believe it, and so the Lord shuts his mouth until his son is born. Now, then the angel goes to Mary and tells Mary, you will have the Messiah. And what does Mary do? Mary knows that Elizabeth is also pregnant in her old age. And so Mary goes and hangs out with Elizabeth. And the moment Mary and Elizabeth get into the same room, John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth starts to leap for joy. These two guys, Jesus and John the Baptist, they're linked together. John is before him. John was conceived before him, and yet that is why John the Baptist says, the one coming after me was actually before me because John knows that Jesus is the Christ. And so it makes perfect sense that before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, the Father sends John out. But I don't think Mark is just calling our attention to the identity of John, the who. Mark is calling our attention to where. Where does John the Baptist's ministry take place? In the wilderness. Look at verse 3. The voice crying out, where? In the wilderness. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing where? In the wilderness. If you look at verse 5, that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. Where was he? He was in the wilderness. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus of Nazareth came from Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Where was the Jordan? In the wilderness where John was. Look at verse 12. And the Spirit immediately drove him Jesus into the wilderness. Look at verse 13. And Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days 
with Satan and the wild animals. You see what John wants us to see? It's not just about who is going in front of the Messiah. That's John the Baptist. What's equally important is where does John the Baptist do his ministry? In the wilderness. Where does Jesus go? In the wilderness. What is the setting of, of Mark chapter 1? It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the temple. It's not in Galilee. It's out there in the desert, in the wilderness. Now, because of that, we have to step back and say, is this abstract, haphazard, or is Mark onto something? He's on to something, right? All right, Jimmy, next, the slide. This idea of wilderness is used 247 times in the Old Testament, right? So trust me on this. I've done my work on it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I cannot see that. What is that? Uh, Judges, 1 Samuel. These are all the passages in the, all the books in the Old Testament where wilderness is used. Now, notice where it's, it's really high in the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It starts to taper a little bit. And notice where it starts to pick back up. These are the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? These are all the prophets. Now, notice right here this yellow chart on top of the blue. That's because Isaiah uses desert and wilderness synonymously. He's one of the only prophets who uses them interchangeably. Here's an example, right? Look at this, Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So wilderness and desert, two different words in the Hebrew, but they're synonymous in his sentence, right? He does it again in Isaiah 30 or 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice. That's the same thing. The desert shall rejoice. Like these are the same things. He's using them synonymously. And so when you add up the number of times Isaiah uses wilderness on top of the times he uses desert, which are oftentimes synonymous, you know what Mark is saying? You can't understand Mark's gospel until you know Isaiah. He is linking his gospel and how he's understanding Jesus through the lens of Isaiah. That's why in our passage, even though he quotes parts of Malachi, where it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he quotes a little bit of Isaiah, but he also quotes Malachi. Notice he does not go to Malachi. In other words, he wants us to read Isaiah. Y'all with me? All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Now, all those references to the wilderness in the Old Testament, they're never good. They're just, they're never good. I'll read one. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord, so much so that you kindled my anger and I thought about blotting you off the face of the earth, right? That's wilderness, right? It's rebellion. It's sin. It's hardness of heart. Well, how did the New Testament authors understand wilderness? Acts chapter 7, it's used five times. Acts chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3. I'm going to read one verse from Hebrews 3. This is how a New Testament writer interprets the wilderness as it was used in the Old Testament. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You think the wilderness is good? It's always a metaphor for Israel's hardness of heart. It's always a metaphor of sin and rebellion and disobedience and roaming and judgment. And it's also true that way in the New Testament. And you see it in our passage in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Even there, wilderness is associated with sin. In verse 5, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sin. Why does this matter? That John the Baptist's ministry happens in the wilderness. Here's why. Can you imagine being a Jew? What was God's promise to you? I want you in my land, flowing with milk and honey. I want you to have homes that you did not build. I want you to have vineyards you did not plant. I want you in my city, and I want my temple built so that you could worship and draw near to me. That was the promise. That was God's plan the whole time. Get my people in my land so that we can be together. And you know what John the Baptist does? This dude is like bananas, right? He like walks into the city to religious folk who in the city of God, who living in homes and who have the temple and the priests and the sacrificial system. And you know what he says? Y'all tells need to follow me out of the city. And they're like, why are we following you out the city, dog? Like we in the land. Why are we going to go out there in the wilderness? Why are you calling us back out? We here. Like, we made it. We got the temple. We got priests. All we need God to do for us is to send our king, and our king can overturn Rome, and we're good. And John says, oh, no, 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 you don't see it. You're in the land, but the Spirit of God is not in you. You have the temple, and you have circumcision, and you have your Jewishness, and you have the city, like you have all these things, and you know what you lack? You lack a new heart. You are not near to God, and therefore, God is going to parade you back out of the city and say, we got to start back at square one. You only in my land because I let you in. Things are not kosher. We are not good. You are propping up, and you think you're safe, because you are Jewish. You think you're safe because you have circumcision. You think you're safe because you have Abraham as your father. You think you're safe because you have a priest and you have a temple and you go to church and you know your Bible, right? And John says, you know nothing about the Lord. And therefore, the Lord says, march your tails right back out the city. And we're going to start from square one. You're in the city, but your hearts are far away from God. 
That's the conversation that God is going to have with you. We are not going to avoid it. It reads as if only John the Baptist sees. Did you notice his attire? It says dude was dressed in camel hair, living in the wilderness, eating honey and locusts. Like he is nasty looking, y'all. He doesn't take baths, right? He is the only one. While the rest of the Jews are in the city with their homes and their Torah and going to worship and going to the temple and they're, they're like dressed up in their good clothes and John come in here like dressed like a gangster, right? Like he's just like, bro, why y'all got all them fine clothes on? Look at y'all. What, what is that? John's the only one who gets it. That's why he's the one who says, the one coming after me is better than me. I'm not worthy to baptize him. John the Baptist is the only one whose life actually looks right side up, and he's not caught up in external appearance, that his heart is near the Lord. He sees the Lord of glory, right? And what he's doing is sounding the bell. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to turn. And you know what he's saying? He's saying this to religious people. He's saying this to people who go to church every Sunday. He's saying this to people who have the law. He is saying this to people who have the comfort and the protection of a fortified city. You think you're fortified. You think you're religious. You're unholy. And everything you're trusting in is a crutch. And so John marks them to the wilderness. What does that feel like? To have the temple in your back and you're walking away from it. To have the sacrificial system to your back and you're walking away from it. To get out here and you think circumcision is of value. And John says, do not think that you are made right because of your circumcision. Do not say to yourself that you are right because you have Abraham, your father. Don't you know what God can do? He will strike this down and start all over. John is meddling, right? He's meddling with them. Now, I think this is a, a, an image for us, what is it that you trust in that you're using to prop you up and you're standing with the Lord? Well, I, I know the Bible, and I can articulate the doctrines of grace, and I'm a good Presbyterian, and I pay my tithes, and I don't do all this other stuff everybody else do. I'm okay, preacher man. Like, really, what is it that we think will prop us up before a righteous God? Well, look at me. Look at me. I'm self-made. I made it. I got money, right? That what is it that we prop ourselves up with that we think gives us validity and meaning and identity before a righteous God? And you know what John says? Leave the crutches alone. And you walk out of everything you're trusting in, and you need to make the pilgrimage in the wilderness where every crack of, of dirty, dusty road is showing you your dirty, dusty heart, right? Every lack of, 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 of water, it's showing your thirsty heart. John says, you got to see this. There is no coming to Jesus unless there is a leaving whatever it is you're trusting in. You cannot come to Christ and still cleave to your righteousness. You cannot come to Christ and cleave to your knowledge of Scripture. 
You cannot come to Jesus and cleave to anything. And therefore, this is the way of the cross. We all have to walk outside of the city and whatever it is that we're trusting in to be made right. And we have to walk on that road. What you trust in? Because what Mark's gospel is going to do He's going to blow it all away and say, unless you're resting in Jesus, all of the ground is sinking sand. That's the theology of the wilderness. And that's why John the Baptist and Mark, they're hammering this home. The second thing we see is the promise in the wilderness. Now, to get at this, I want to look at a few slides to show you what I'm talking about that it's not just that wilderness was a place where there was rebellion and judgment and testing and dryness of heart. It's actually that God actually promises to start doing something in this place, not over there. He's not going to start working over there, that the path towards him, it starts with turning away and walking where it's uncomfortable. And God says, I will show up in the unlikeliest of places and give grace there. Now, you see it. All right, Jimmy, next slide. All right, so I'm going to read a few of these. I'm not going to read all of them, but pay attention to the correlation between wilderness and this new thing that God wants to do and where he wants to do it. Look, at that time, a future time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace. Where? Y'all can talk back to me. Where was grace found? In the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Where do they find grace? In the wilderness. Next slide. Isaiah 35. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Go back, Jimmy. I'm sorry. <laughs> the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I looked up crocus. It's from the iris family. Saffron, the, 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 the herb, it comes from that plant. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In other words, when you look at Isaiah, he's laying out when will God start the remaking of the world. He says, first, something's going to happen in the wilderness. And after whatever it is happens in the wilderness, here is going to be a sign. You're going to start going to see blind people who see and deaf people who hear. Does not that sound a lot like Jesus? When he starts his earthly ministry? All right, next slide. Isaiah 43, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive of it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, and the wild beasts will honor me, and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and drink to my chosen people. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be, be, uh, will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. 
I could be up here for 10 more minutes, y'all, for real, and show you all the correlations in the major prophets where all of them are making this bold declaration. There's a promise in the wilderness. God's going to show up in this place and do something miraculous. He promises that I will go and transform the wilderness into Eden. Now, let's connect the dots here. Mark understood where the beginning of Jesus' kingdom would be. And it would not be in the city. It would not be in the temple. Jesus would start making all things new in the desolate of desolate places. He will go where there is no grass and the kingdom he's bringing, grass will abound. He will go where there is no water and all of a sudden water breaks forth. He will go where the lame can't walk and the deaf can't hear and the blind can't see and all of a sudden he's going to bend all of this back to show you that I am the king and I have come and I am making all things new but I'm going to start over here in the desert. Now, think about how we know the world will end. We know that God will return all things. He will make all things new. There is a city of God made for God's people where there is no crying and there is no death and there is no aneurysm and there is no cancer and there is no animals who will attack you. There is no person who can harm you. We will take all of our weapons and turn them into farming tools and the lion will lay next to the lamb and we will be with the Lord forever. That is how the story ends. And Mark says, let me tell you how it begins. It begins in the wilderness. It begins when you walk away from that stuff. That's where the Lord starts to work. It's right here. You get it? That's the promise, right? The promise is for those who will not be deceived by the comforts of this world. Those who will trust in their riches no more. Those who will not trust in the security of this world. Those who will not trust in their own righteousness. That as we leave all of that behind and move towards God in faith and make that uncomfortable journey away from self and away from the world to him, God says, there and there alone will I work. It's an invitation and it's confirmation. If you're a believer, you know that journey, right? You know that day when the gospel kind of slapped you around and rocked you a little bit and you over here propped up thinking you all good and you had to kind of, you got convicted and you saw yourself as God sees yourself and there was this long, hard journey Walking away from maybe some friends, walking away from maybe some comforts, walking away maybe from religion, and walking away from everything that you thought made you right. And that was a really, really, really hard and awkward place to be. And then God shows up right there in that place and says, you're in the right place. This is the way and where I work right here.
and I'm making all things new from right here. That's the promise in the wilderness. The last thing Mark shows us is the hope in the wilderness. Mark wastes no time connecting the promise, right, to make all things new, the promise to the person who would actually do it and how he would do it. And so Mark shows us the who and the how, the who and the how of our hope. Mark says, look at it closely. Who is the one who gives us hope? It's the God-man, Christ Jesus alone. And Mark is really careful to talk about the humanity of Jesus. He says, look, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus, right? So ignore Christ, the Son of God. Kind of ignore that. Go down to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So John is telling us where this Jesus guy was from. He was born and raised in Nazareth of Galilee. If you want to go see where he went to the candy lady at, go to Nazareth in Galilee. If you want to see who water faucets he drank out of, go to Nazareth of Galilee. If you want to know who his people name is, go to Nazareth of Galilee. In other words, Mark isn't just telling us where Jesus came from. He's actually showing us that he was a real human being who walked the earth. You can go to where he was born and they're going to tell you about him. But he wasn't just a man. Notice he says he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And some manuscripts in verse 1, they don't have the Son of God, but what all manuscripts do have is what Jesus heard when he was baptized by John the Baptist down there in verse 10. And he came up out of the water, and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Every copy of Mark has that. What is Mark saying? is fully human and truly fully God in a mysterious way by the Spirit wrapped up into one person. And what's absolutely beautiful here is look at it. Look at verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When Mark quotes that, he's quoting from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, that word for Lord is Yahweh. And so John the Baptist is there to prepare the way of Yahweh. And then read verse 9, in those days, Jesus showed up. Make the connection. Jesus is a suitable mediator to stand in the place of Yahweh. 
And when John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, it draws our images, our minds back to Exodus when Moses met Yahweh in the burning bush and Yahweh told him, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And so when John the Baptist makes the way for Yahweh and then Jesus shows up and then John the Baptist says, look, I'm not even worthy to bend down and touch his shoes. This is the second person of the Trinity. It's not Yahweh, maybe precisely, but it is a suitable representative in the place of Yahweh that the Father then himself says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, of whom the Holy Spirit descends upon him and stays there like a dove know who we're dealing with is very God, a very God. And his baptism is amazing. Listen to what Bruner says about it. We must glory and be surprised that Jesus gets baptized at all. It is as if one were to announce the coming of a great preacher at a series of evangelistic meetings. And one night when the preacher arrives, instead of going to the platform, he goes to the altar, not to the podium, but to the penitent's bench, not to preach, but to kneel. This is Jesus' first adult act in the gospel. And now in one scene, we see what the adult Jesus will be like for the rest of the gospel. I consider this incident to be Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of his humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be lived like this. It is well known that Jesus Jesus ends his life between the cross of two thieves, but he begins his life in the water with sinners. He begins his life in the water with sinners. What's happening? This is God Almighty putting on flesh, coming down here to go to war in the wilderness for us. That's what this is. And so Jesus does this first by identifying with us. He takes on flesh. He gets baptized, not because he's guilty, but because we're guilty. He enters into that water and stays there. And then what would he do? I don't know if you've seen the movie Creed. It's so old that if you hadn't seen it, I'm just going to tell it to you right now. <laughs> so if you watch Rocky Balboa, when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be like Rocky. Rocky had a friend named Apollo Creed, and he was a, a black dude. And, and Apollo was a really good boxer. Apollo fought a Russian. I think his name was Ivan Dragoff. I don't know if I'm saying his name. I, I, that's right. All right. He fought Ivan Dra and he, he was killed. Well, here's what we know when the movie Creed picks up. Apollo had a kid, and he had a kid out of wedlock, so he was married to one woman, but he had another lady who got pregnant. Well, Apollo died, and then that woman died giving birth. 
And so their son was in the custody of the juvenile detention center, right? And so he goes into juvie and he stays in juvie until he's probably 10 and he's fighting all the time. And one day this woman shows up and she comes to adopt him. And it is Apollo's wife. And so she adopts his son, but he's not her son. And she raises him and cares for him. And he doesn't fully know his identity. And then he, then he realizes that, man, my dad was a really good boxer. And so she gets him on the straight and narrow. He gets this nine to five business job, marketing job. But he was fighting on the, on the chitlin circuit, as I would call it, right? He's kind of fighting in Tijuana, Mexico. Like he's kind of making, I mean, he's just making a name for himself. But nobody knows who he is right up here in the real boxing federation. And so he's down here beating like real people. And then he finally quits his job and walks away from it. And he wants to move to Philly to be trained by Rocky Balboa. And so he goes and he finds Rocky. Rocky has this restaurant called Adrian, which is in, in, in memory of his wife. And Rocky starts to train him. He has one fight with a guy from a local gym in Philadelphia that he wins. And then somehow through the providence, he gets sort of propelled to fight the number one guy in the boxing world. And all the commentators, they're all saying, you know, because at that point, his identity comes out. They figure out, okay, they realize he's a creed. He's a creed. And everybody's like, man, can he really box? And so one commentator says this, I see he has the name, but does he have the game? That's the million dollar question. He got the name, but does he have the game? We want to see if he can back it up, right? And obviously he goes and does a good fight, but that's an image for where Jesus is. He has the name, family, son of God, right? And what was beautiful in this text, notice what happens as soon as he comes out of the water. Look at verse 12. And the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. What is the spirit doing? You got the name. Go show him you got the game. Go show him. Go toe to toe with the enemy. And notice what it says, and the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Wasn't he already in the wilderness to get out there to John anyway? And so what the Spirit does is takes him deeper into the wilderness so that he can do what? Fight Satan. Why would he do that? Because one man named Adam was not in the wilderness. He was in the garden. And he had it all good. And he went to war with Satan, and he lost. And then says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to start a new people out of you, and I'm going to deliver you with my mighty arm and my outstretched hand, or mighty hand and outstretched arm, and I'm going to bring you out of bondage in Egypt, and we're going to go to the promised land. And you know what happened to them? They spent 40 years where? In the wilderness because they couldn't get right. So Israel failed, Adam failed, and so God says, okay, enough. I got my guy. He got the name, and he got the game, and we're going to put him up. And you know where he goes? He goes in the wilderness, 
And he stays for 40 days. That 40 is going all the way back to Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And he goes to battle with Satan going all the way back to when Adam went to battle. And you know what the difference is? Jesus went 40 rounds with Satan in the deepest wilderness, in the wilderness beyond the wilderness that you and I will ever experience. And 40 rounds, he won. He won. And that was a foretaste of his whole life and ministry. I will go to war in the wilderness and I will come out victorious. How do we know he came out victorious? Look at it. Only Mark says this. After 40 days being tempted by Satan. And notice that last phrase. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Did y'all hear Fee when he was, when he broke down in tears? You know why? Because on that day. We will lay down with lions and they will not torment you. That a part of the promises in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah is the sign of the coming Messiah. He will go into the wilderness and defeat Satan and start making all things new. And the wild animals will bow down before him and will not attack him at his weakest point. And Mark says, Jesus did that. The animals were out there bowing and worshiping because he is making all things new. This is a foretaste of all things to come. And you know where it starts? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. Here is the good news to every one of us in this room. There is someone out there stronger than you and his name is Satan. And there is someone out there who crushed him. His name is Jesus. There is righteousness out there that the Father requires that you can't give. And there is one who went out into the wilderness and faced the judgment of God face to face on his own for you and I that we will never, ever, ever have to worry about it. Mark says, this is the good news and this is your Savior. Worship Him, adore Him, love Him, rest in Him, praise Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I do pray that You would make us a people, a people who would freely walk away from the cares of the world out into those hard places in life. Make us a people who expect you to show up in those hard places. Make us a people, Lord, who have watched and have believed that you have and are making all things new through Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. We pray this in his name. Amen.